let's jump into this series that we're in the book of Acts. And uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we're uh, in this uh, fantastic series looking at the book of Acts and really how the church changed history, because it has. And uh, this morning we dive right into a very important chapter in the book of Acts. If you're not quite, if you haven't uh, read Acts chapter 15, it's probably one of the most pivotal uh, moments in the history of Christianity. It's an, it's a landmark decision. Uh, much like when uh, LBJ signed into law the Civil Rights Bill of 1965, knocking down the Jim Crow laws down in the South and, and giving African Americans uh, legal protection to actually vote. Um, even though um, they did have equality, there was still a lot in the South that was still uh, uh, still Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, where it was separate but equal. And that civil rights bill was a big deal, the landmark decision that LBJ uh, signed into effect. And in a very similar way, uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, makes a landmark decision in terms of what makes a Christian a Christian. And we're going to look at that this morning. So the Bible, let's turn to the book of Acts. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. And it's written by a guy named Luke, as I mentioned before. And uh, Luke is a Gentile. And uh, he actually, his story is, is mentioned here right in the middle of the book of Acts of how he comes to Christ in Antioch. So he, he bases this book, by the way, it's a sequel because he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And as I mentioned before, one-fourth of the New Testament comes from Luke. So a lot of how we understand Christianity is uh, the influence of Luke in, in his writings. But he, he, put, he compiled this a lot through eyewitnesses. And he was very, very close to Paul and also to Peter. We pick up in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 15. Um, and I'm going to read, I'm, I'm not going to read all verses 1 through 11 and 13 through 19. I include that in your teaching notes. So I want to encourage you to actually read that this, this week. Take a moment to read that and maybe read it with your family or for your devotions. But I'm going to jump around here uh, and actually uh, read uh, parts of that. So Acts chapter 15, verse 1, before I start, let me pray. Father God, thank you for being here. We sense your presence in a profound way, God, and we give thanks for you. We give thanks for all that you do in our lives. And God, I pray that you'd anoint this message, Lord, that you would um, use me to uh, teach, and that uh, this morning... Uh, those who are here who've been at church for a long time, that perhaps uh, they're reminded on something. Uh, so often our preaching and teaching is really reminding us of the, the truths of Scripture. Uh, but also, Lord, for those who, who maybe church is new to them and, and this whole Christian thing is new to them, I pray your blessing upon their lives and for them to uh, just to have their eyes open and their hearts open. And so, God, as a congregation and as a community, we, uh, we just... Uh, submit ourselves to you and just like we sang we are yours we are yours in jesus name we pray everybody said amen luke chapter 15 verse 1 paul luke writes x chapter 15 verse 1 luke writes this while paul and barnabas were at antioch of syria so now we see a church actually in antioch and at first there was a church in jerusalem but now we, we're starting to see the spread of the gospel and actually New churches uh, being planted and started, just like uh, for us, Maple Grove Covenant coming from uh, Brookdale Covenant. And that's what was happening in terms of the church. And then Paul begins to plant churches as well. And we see that there's a church in Antioch. Some men from Judea 
arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. We need to note that the Christian movement, uh, the church movement, began first as a Jewish Christian movement. Most of the Christians, if not all of them at this point, were uh, Jewish. So we have this where they're saying, you need to do what we do. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. So there's another group of uh, Christians and uh, another church there. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. So what we have here is this huge conflict, this huge conflict that's, uh, that's, that's occurring. And, and as a result, some of the churches send sort of like delegates. Like for us, we have our uh, national conference. And it's in Omaha, Nebraska this year, and it's at the end of next month. And we send delegates from our church to that conference. And all the covenant churches across America do the same thing. And that's what was happening right here, because there's going to be this council meeting in Jerusalem to, to decide what makes a Christian a Christian. So this is a really important decision. This is an important meeting. So if you can kind of imagine the scene, sort of like maybe like a city council meeting, and then various people would come up to give public, public testimony about why or why not the Gentiles should be included. But Peter's first, and this is important. It says right here in verse 6, so the apostles and elders met together to resolve the issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. I just want to note this because this is, this is important for us. Peter stands up first. Scholars believe this for a number of reasons. Because probably just weeks before this, he's confronted by Paul in the, Galatia, in, in, uh, in the church in Jerusalem where, where Peter is sitting with the Je uh, Jewish believers and ignoring the Gentile believers. He's actually playing favorites. And Paul is younger than Peter, scholars believe. And, and Paul confronts Peter and says, what are you doing? Gentiles are just as much as Christians as the Jewish believers. And you can read about that in Galatians chapter 2. We taught, talked, talked about that last year. So Paul confronts him. And what I love about Peter is that he fails forward. He learns the lesson. He learns the lesson from that Gentile believer, Gentiles can be believers too. So he's the first one to stand up. We also believe at that same time, Paul is composing Galatians around that same time that this council meeting is happening. So Paul addresses them. Brothers, you know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. That is going to be a seminal verse for us. Very important verse. As he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we, that neither we nor our ancestors could actually, uh, were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way. This is a land, these are landmark words right here. He is laying down some important things. And probably for the first time, when we hear about salvation, worded this way, and then Paul expounds on this, of course, in all his letters, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. You may want to underline that phrase in your Bible, or perhaps highlight it in your, in your Bible app, 
by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. And this is important. This is a conflict that they're dealing with. And, and, and Peter is addressing and he's sharing can, about Gentiles. Gentiles can be Christians. Gentiles can be Christians. In fact, when you jump back to verse 3, I want you to look at that word, converted. It's a very important word. Because it says that Gentiles are being converted. And we use that word sort of Christianese. We use the kind of words that, that, that maybe other folks in, um, other people in society don't really use. But we use the word converted in Christianity quite a bit. What does it mean? What does it mean? It comes from a, a Greek word. You'll actually see in your teaching notes. You may want to write this down. Epistrepho. Epistrepho means actually in military terms an about face. It's where you turn around. It's a quick turnaround. And the idea here is to be converted is to return back, to do an about face, to return back to the love and relationship and the love of God. That's what conversion is, is to return back. And that's what Peter's saying is that Gentiles are turning back. It's absolutely beautiful. And as we read here in what, what, Peter, or what Peter is talking about, he made no distinction between us, verse 9, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. Now that's an important uh, language as well because as he talked about being cleansed, the, the hearts being cleansed through faith, that was the idea of the Mosaic law, of circumcision, of certain uh, rites and passages that they had uh, as Jewish people that they believed their hearts would be cleansed. And Peter's using that same la- language and applying it to Gentiles. And then he goes into verse 11, we believe that we are all sa- saved the same way. Because so there's this conflict going on. There's a conflict here uh, in this council meeting of what's occurring. And what we see here, I think, is a passionate exchange of different opinions, which we need in the church. We desperately need different opinions. I love that we see this here. We need that. It's a, it's a big process of being a healthy church. And I pray for Maple Grove Covenant that we would have robust and, and um, uh, relevant discussions and differing opinions on certain things. At the same time that we're unified because we have this trust in our relationship with each other, but also our trust with God. And when you have trust going on, you can engage in conflict and disagreement. It's very important for us. The problem is, though, in most churches, is that leaders in the churches uh, typically lack the expertise or they lack the leadership how to guide a congregation through intramural conflict towards a constructive end or a constructive solution. And also people... I think in the church lacks civility. It's either fight or flight when it comes to conflict. And yet we see here in the church, um, here in Acts 15, if anything that you see is how they constructively work through conflict and disagreement. Remember, Paul and Barnabas disagreed and argued vehemently, okay? It wasn't like, uh, you know, soft-spoken. They argued vehemently against the fact that Gentile believers couldn't be Christians according to some of the Jewish believers. But our debate needs to be centered on, on who God is and what God is doing in our midst. And that's exactly what we see in Acts 15. It's all about who God is and what is happening in our midst. What is God doing in our midst? And we see this testimony of Peter and testimonies are crucial for good debate. So one is saved by this faith offered in grace. And Peter absorbs that and he realizes that. And that's an important aspect. In your teaching notes, we learn from Acts 15 that a Christian is a Christian um, as there's someone who is saved by faith in Jesus Christ. They're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And as such, 
We join other believers in the church. See, salvation is not simply just an individual choice, but when we become saved in faith, we're actually part of a greater good. We're part of a church. We're part of a community. That's what the book of Acts is all about, is that Christianity is not simply an individual journey or individual decision, but actually it's a part. When you make that choice, that you become part of a community, part of a church family. I've been to Colorado a number of times. In fact, my daughter, who just graduated yesterday from Bethel University, and we just had a great time yesterday celebrating her graduation. And I'm celebrating, too, because uh, tuition bills are now done. Um, but I have one more expense, and that's her wedding next year. Uh, and that's going to be up in Estes Park, Colorado, which I'm really happy. Her and her fiancé love Colorado. They love Estes Park. But, you know, the nice thing about destination weddings especially when you're the, you're, the, you're the father of the bride and you're paying for it, less plates. <laughs> so anyways, uh, but, but uh, Colorado is just a really special place, I think, for me and, and my family. And what I noticed though about Colorado, one of the things I love are the Aspens. How many of you have seen the Aspens in Colorado? It is absolutely gorgeous. And I think uh, Colorado Aspens uh, provide a living picture of the church. I mean, have you noticed they grow in groups? They don't grow by themselves. They're not individual trees. They actually grow in groups. And they're often on the other side of bald sides of mountains. So there's no, uh, there's no coverage of the sun because they're sun seekers. They're sun seekers and they're root sharers, writes, writes Max Lucado. Unlike firs or pines, which prefer shade, aspens worship warmth. Unlike oaks, whose roots go very deep, aspens' roots actually go wide. They intertwine, and they share nutrients with other aspens. They intertwine with each other. Light lovers, root sharers, right Lucado, sounds like a healthy church. Oddly, some people enjoy the shade of the church while refusing to set down any roots. God, yes. Church, no. They like the benefits, but they resist, resist the commitment. The music, the message, the clean conscience. They accept church perks, but... They date her, they visit her, they enjoy an occasional rendezvous. They use the church, but to commit to the church, which we're seeing more and more today in America, can't do that. Got to keep options open. Don't want to miss out on opportunities. I propose they already have. Miss the church and miss God's unique and sacred movement within a group of people. The church is the hope of the world. The church, I believe, is the primary agent to which God brings redemption to the world. Not the only way, but I believe the primary way. And that's why the church is called the Bride of Christ. The church is very special to God. And he has not given up on her. Even though we read about scandals, even though we read about churches closing and such, the church is a special place in God's heart. It's part of his plan. It's part of his unfolding plan, as we see in the book of Acts. See, when we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, we become part of a community. And Paul expounds on this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says this. He calls the church a poem. He says, we are his workmanship. Another word for that is masterpiece. And I mentioned this before in other sermons. That, that word for workmanship or masterpiece is the Greek word poema. It's where we get the word poem. We are God's poetry. And what Longfellow or Dickinson or Yeats or Eliot uh, did on pen and paper, our maker does with us. We express his creative work. But you aren't God's poetry. I'm not God's poetry. We are God's poetry. That's how it works. 
It's not an individual thing. God uses us in a variety of ways. And as we've talked about before, our unique gifts and talents and passions, and he brings it together to create something absolutely beautiful. So number one, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Also, Acts 15 teaches us other things as well, is that once a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they're given a memorable gift. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to actually turn to a person next to you and share a memorable gift. You probably have a number, number of gifts, but a memorable gift that you got maybe as a child or as a teenager or as an adult. Are you thinking about it? Thinking? Low. Are you thinking? Okay, I won't make you say hallelujah, by the way. <laughs> I, love, I love Brianna. Uh, okay, so memorable gift. Now, when I was younger, the first movie I saw was the actual Star Wars. The first, very first Star Wars movie in 1977 in a theater. That was my first movie I ever saw. And after I saw that, I wanted to get the action figures. So I had Luke Skywalker, I had Chewbacca, I had R2-D2, I had C-3PO, I had Princess Leia, I had Han Solo, of course, who was my favorite guy. And, um, but I had no ship. I had, you know, I had the action figures on the carpet, and they would do stuff. And then, of course, I had Stormtroopers and Darth Vader, but I really couldn't really do anything. I, want, I wanted my, my, group, my gang, Luke Skywalker and, his, and, and, the, and those folks, in, a, in a, some kind of ship. So one Christmas... By surprise, I get the Millennium Falcon. Oh, the Millennium Falcon! It was the greatest gift ever. I remember I opened, I, I seriously, I, I remember opening that gift and, and looking inside, and there is the Millennium Falcon. I thought I would never receive a better gift for the rest of my life. And I was okay with that. It was an amazing gift. It was a memorable gift. I should have kept it and sold on eBay and made a lot of money on that original Millennium Falcon. But... So turn to a person next to you. What's a memorable gift that you received? Yeah, we have memorable gifts. And in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, a memorable gift that that a Christian is given is the Holy Spirit. Let me go back to what what Peter says here. He says, brothers, you, you all know in uh, verse 7 that God chose me from among you some time ago skipping on to verse 8 God knows people's hearts and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit that is a memorable gift that is an incredible gift to receive the Holy Spirit the presence of the Holy Spirit the Bible says that when you say yes to Jesus Christ and that you have Christ in your life that you're given this memorable gift this gift that will never perish this gift that will stay with you for the rest of your life called the Holy Spirit. Because this is important. And this becomes the litmus test of what makes a Christian a Christian. Because we would skip down to verse uh, go down to verse 19 after Peter shares this, that, the, that they have the, the Holy Spirit. Then James says this, And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So when, when Peter says that they have the Holy Spirit just like us, that is, the, that is the difference. That's what makes a Christian a Christian, among other things. That's the, primary, that's the primary difference. The Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. And then, because sometimes people can say, well, I believe in Jesus. And, or, or, yeah, I believe Jesus is uh, the Savior and Lord. But the Bible says the demons believe in Jesus and they shudder. So to see a difference in someone's life, 
The Holy Spirit is a mark of God's people. Before this, circumcision, as I mentioned before, was a Jewish mark of their belonging to God and being acceptable to Him. And Peter is now saying, that's all changed. God is moving in a new way, in a revolutionary way, that it's going to be the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this occurs through faith in Christ. That as you proclaim faith in Christ and as you accept that grace that given by Jesus, that you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Number two in your teaching notes, Acts 15 teaches us what makes a Christian a Christian is number two, the gift and presence of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says this, before he ascends and goes to heaven, he says, I will, uh, he, God the Father, will give you another counselor. You may want to write that down in your teaching notes. Another is a very important word. Because what another means here, and I didn't know this until this past week, when he says another counselor, it means another of the exact same kind. Sometimes we see uh, God the Father and Jesus kind of uh, above uh, the, uh, you know, above uh, the Holy Spirit, like the, the Holy Spirit is below the pay grade or something. And but the Holy Spirit, as we find out here in Jesus, Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you uh, someone exactly like me, and that's the Holy Spirit. And he takes up residence in us. I'll get to that in a second. But what does he do? Maybe you're here and you, you never really understood what it means to have the Holy Spirit in your life. What does he do? There's a few things. He does everything you need in the Christian life. He meets every one of your needs. He guides you. He teaches you. As we, as we talked about two weeks ago, he empowers you. He prays for you. Get that. The Holy Spirit prays for you. Everything you need in the Christian life comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned, when he comes to our life is when we, the moment we make Christ Lord and Savior in our lives. And because the Spirit, in a sense, is Jesus, they're, they're the same. You can't have one without the other. And that is the beauty of the Trinity, three in one. And he indwells in us. In the book of Romans, five times Paul punches that word, indwells. It's it over and over and over again because he wants Christians to know that they have the Holy Spirit who indwells in us. And it's a past tense, present tense kind of word, which you have in the Greek. It means, actually, to indwell means that he has made his living within us, like a home, and also he is living in us. Isn't that beautiful? So he, he's made his living in us, and he's living in us. And the Holy Spirit does exactly that. And Acts shows that the, that the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is absolutely instrumental to uh, the church beginning to change the world. But that was then. What about now? Why would God give me and you the gift of the Holy Spirit? In our lives because we need help for us to live out um, the goodness and beauty that we have in this relationship with God we need serious help I need a lot of help thank goodness I have the Holy Spirit in, in our life I think the best illustration I can give you is a light bulb because in our lives we're kind of like this light bulb you know that's a nice light bulb this is from my house it's a nice light bulb and it's uh, ornate, but it, it doesn't do anything by itself. Just like you and I can't do anything by ourselves. But when you screw that in to a lamp or to whatever uh, thing you have, it lights up. That is if it's not dead. 
but you just, it lights up because you turn it in. And that's the same way. You and I need to be connected to the power source of the Holy Spirit. For the light to shine in a light bulb, it has to be screwed in. And then from there, the electricity and the power source makes that light shine. In the same way, you and I need to be connected to, to something, someone. And that is the Holy Spirit. So it, it, when we talk about um, the Holy Spirit in Christianity, sometimes we think, like, what, what can I do or what do I need to do or, 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 or uh, maybe I can do this. But really, what you need to do is simply be connected to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to shine through your life, to surrender. And surrender is hard. Let's be honest. It's not easy. But actually, to let your light shine, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, is, is to let your light shine before all others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You and I are like this light bulb and to be connected to the Holy Spirit. And maybe for you, your prayer today is, is Holy Spirit, shine through me. Shine through me. As I'm this, this light bulb, I can't do anything on my own. I need you to shine through my life. And what Paul tells us too, which is absolutely a beautiful passage, is that even in our cracks, even in our mistakes and failures, the light, the light of the Holy Spirit, the light of Christ still shines through. So don't think you have to be perfect for that to happen. His light shines through. Remember that. And I gave the challenge to a number of you. To, if, if you feel like you're in, you would uh, say, yes, I'm in. And I'm going to pray for an opportunity to share my faith with those around me. And um, when that opportunity comes, I'm going to just, you know, be courageous. And the Holy Spirit will shine through me and bring the words, even though I'm really freaked out. And over 100 of you filled out these cards. And I've been praying every week for these cards. Praying for your, an opportunity for you. Some of you wrote your names down, others didn't. If you were gone that Sunday and you want to join me this late spring and the rest of the summer, and you uh, want to join us and others who have said yes, and, and want to be a part of praying for opportunities to share uh, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to share uh, your uh, testimony and to pray for those opportunities, you have a communication card right on the back, I'm in. Yes, I'm in. And then I'll add you to our, the pile of cards they have, and I'll be praying for you. And I've been praying for an opportunity. And an opportunity came, not in the best way, but it's an opportunity. My cousin Regina on the case side, I have 37 cousins. I got six uncles and two aunts. It's a big, big family. We have a case family uh, reunion. We have second cousins and third, I have third cousins. Uh, we have over 100 people that come together. And uh, over the course of time, I've become sort of like the, the family pastor, even though most of my uh, cousins and uncles and aunts and most of the case family, uh, they're Catholic or they don't go to church or what have you, and really not a strong uh, spiritual life. But every case uh, uh, Christmas dinner, they always ask me to pray. And over time, I've, I've just kind of planted little gospel phrases in there and little, little salvation messages in there. Well, my cousin Regina, who is five years older than me, she's 55, she was diagnosed with stomach cancer about four years ago. And this is, uh, uh, you know, it was heartbreaking for us to hear that, but she fought so courageously. And then about two months ago, the doctor said, you have probably a month or two. And she passed away last week. Before that happened, uh, my one cousin, Monique, who I'm, who's the same age as me, and goes to Eaglebrook, I, I asked her, I said, 
has Regina made that decision for Christ? Because I'm like, you know, I'll drive wherever I have to to meet with her and, and spend some time with her. And she said, yeah, she did. She came to a service recently and uh, made Christ the Savior and Lord of her life. I was like, yes, yes. That, they have asked me to do the funeral. And it's this Wednesday. This is the first of our 38 cousins to pass away. And it's going to be hard. And um, for them to ask me, and when it comes to the cousins, I'm, I'm kind of on the younger side. Uh, most of my cousins are older. And I look up to so many of them. I idolize so many of them. And am I freaked out? Yes. <laughs> but they've asked, and they used to call me this, little Craig, because I was a late bloomer. Uh, they've asked me to actually uh, speak and uh, officiate uh, this funeral. And I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to say, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, like Regina had, um, you are lost. And you, uh, your future is hopeless without Jesus Christ. And I ask that you pray for me. But God has given me this opportunity, and I'm going to have a captive audience. And uh, very similar to my Easter message, I'm simply going to put a prayer out there. And if, if my cousins and family members agree with that, to say me too um, for that to occur. And we have those opportunities. And, and, and uh, as I think about it, and I, I'm starting to even get nervous thinking about it right now. But um, I'm a light bulb. It's got to show up. Because the light of the Holy Spirit, my energy source, he will shine through me. I just got to show up. So I put everything on him. I'm going to show up and, and his, allow his light to, to shine. And maybe right now for you, maybe it's not necessarily sharing in the gospel, but maybe for you it's raising your kids. Maybe it's a relationship in your family right now that you're a bit freaked out. Or maybe it's a career or financial change. Just realize that you're a light bulb. And just hand it over to God. Take that stress, take that burden that's on your shoulders and just say, I'm a light bulb and I'm just going to allow the, the power source of the Holy Spirit to shine through my life to help me through whatever is going on in my life. So number two, Acts 2, Acts 15, excuse me, teaches us that we have this, that what makes a Christian a Christian is the gift and presence of the Holy Spirit. Now let me, let me move on to number three. And, and because some people may disagree with perhaps these first two points and say that what makes a Christian a Christian is perhaps one of the following. America is a Christian nation, so I'm an American, therefore I'm a Christian. I've heard that before. A Christian is anybody who is not a Jew. Some people believe that. A Christian is somebody who prays and goes to church. Others would say, I was born in the church, so I'm a Christian. Others would say, I joined the church. But if you join the Lions Club, does that make you a lion? It's really a bad joke. Anyways, um, how about these? For the longest time, if you were born in Denmark, if you were Danish, if you were born Danish, they believed for the longest time that you were actually a Christian. Until Søren Kierkegaard actually confronted that worldview. For the longest time, they believed that God's favor was in Denmark. And if you had Danish blood, you were a Christian. I think some of you here, because you have Swedish blood, you think you're a Christian. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyways, others, if you grew up in a Catholic family or attended Mass or engaged in certain aspects of Catholicism, you think you're saved and you're automatically a Christian. I grew up on a, a Baptist, fourth generation Baptist on my mother's side. 
I heard sermons when I was young that if you were anything but Baptist, you were going to H-E double hockey sticks. Seriously. That if you were not Baptist, you were not going to heaven. And I concluded 